Hey everyone, Hoppo here. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to get into the studio because of the COVID outbreak, so the quality of these episodes may not be as good as usual. But stay safe, and uh, we'll get through all this together. Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad, and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way, and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I chat with ultra marathon runner, Samantha Gash, who talks about her amazing achievements and her goal to raise money to help India deal with the impact of COVID. After that, we have Beach Banner, and then I go to the mailbag to answer questions from the fans. Now let's have a listen to my chat with Sam. This week on Life's a Beach, it's a pleasure to have uh, in the beach shack ultra marathon runner Samantha Gash. Sam, welcome. I feel like the opposite of the beach shack right now. I'm like <laughs> freezing in the Dandenong Ranges. I've even got like a grandma blanket on my legs. <laughs> well, we were going to do a chat a few weeks ago, but um, you had to evacuate because of the uh, it was flooding down there. So maybe yeah. tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the Dandenong Ranges. I live in a, at the National Park. Uh, it's about 35Ks from Melbourne. And we had a freak storm. I feel like I've become an expert in how trees become resilient. <laughs> um, because basically my home is just surrounded by these massive gum trees, um, all the backyard. And I mean, the whole Dandenong Ranges is like that. And we had a southeasterly wind, which we never have. And these massive trees, even the fifth tallest tree in Victoria fell. And um, <laughs> houses, I know one, one tree is going, yes, I've made it to the top five. <laughs> um, <laughs> but besides, like it's been, it's, I mean, it's a natural disaster. We had um, the military up there, um, you know, that house in front of us completely gone. Our whole backyard's been demolished. Luckily, the house is okay besides some leaking. So we haven't really been at home for the last month. So it's just been an interesting period of instability, but... It also does remind you like how amazing community can be when like an adversity is like thrusted yeah. their way because I've never seen my community the way it showed up over the past month. Like we had like tr food trucks and like it, the, the oval was basically this emergency evacuation site for an entire month. Everyone cooking meals and so yeah, it, you know, crappiness and then amazingness all at the one time. Yeah, I did. it is amazing because I've uh, dealt a little bit with the fires we had down the south coast and a few of my mates had moved down there over the years and one of them had their house totally burnt down and we went down and, and as you said, that the community just rally when there's a, a major tragedy. Yeah, it makes you sometimes think, you know, maybe community should learn to, you know, 
roll out their rallyingness in a more sustained fashion? Like, what if we were always just better people to our neighbours? Yeah. Um, why does it need to be like a shit case, like natural disaster that makes people think, oh, I should yeah. check on people and I should offer if they need a meal or I should, you know, I just, I think if we sustained out our caring, you know, 24-7 throughout the 365 days of the year, maybe people's well-being would be better. Yeah. Start, we totally started this podcast in a very bizarre way, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's all good. Well, we'll get into the uh, to your marathon running, and uh, but I want to start with. I, I know you you started running in two thousand and eight, but prior to that, were you ever like uh, into sports or an athlete or something to then suddenly trigger yourself to? Well, hang on, I'm going to run off and uh, and do these ultra marathons. Yeah, I wish I could tell you that I've been a sporting Adonis my whole lifetime, but sports couldn't be further from my, you know, everyday life as a kid. You can't see it because we're not in the studio together, but I'm just a smidge under five foot tall. And that doesn't mean that small people can't be athletic, but I was one of those small people that was uncoordinated kind of quite embarrassed for my lack of sporting abilities as a kid. Um, So no, it's actually something that I really picked up when I started running and I just ran off with it. And I think marathons for me and particularly ultra marathons never so much seemed like a physical feat. They always seemed much more like a mental feat. And I think that's how I transitioned myself to becoming more physical by viewing it in a different way. Right. Well, I mean, I always uh, grew up a natural runner as a kid, and I did a lot of 5K, 10K. That was pretty much my specific distance. I think above that was just getting out of the comfort zone. But I was always to go as fast as you possibly can, you know, in (laughs) 5, 10K. Obviously, an ultra marathon, and I noticed you did your first marathon in, it was the Melbourne Marathon. Yeah. How how did that feel? Was that just something I'm just going to get from A to B? I mean, it was a bit of a bucket list. That was kind of a a point in my life. I was at university. I had been studying a double degree in performing arts and law for close to a a decade. And I just started to look at the trajectory of my life and I was like, okay, I'm definitely wired to be a lawyer. But I started to see like, okay, I'm going to be behind a desk and I'm going to be looking at a computer screen. And I started to see this lowering of mobility and freedom And so I was like, okay, well, right now I'm, you know, time rich, but money poor. So why don't I just go and seek out every opportunity that I can, like hit all these like bucket list things. So I was like, okay, I'd love to run a marathon. I want to go and work in the United States doing a capital defense internship. You know, I want to go and do some work in an indigenous community in the Northern Territory. I literally just wrote everything down and I just started to say yes. And I got it from, um, you know, our incredible um, departed Bud Tingwell. He's, he was acting in a performance that I was doing, a play. Right. And one day he kind of spoke to all of us junior actors and he rem- he said to us that his mantra for his, his entire life was to just say yes. He's like, every opportunity, everything that you've ever seen me do is because I said yes to it. Um, he's like, I never say no. And in my middle of my 20s, I realized that I was saying no to a lot of stuff. And I think the more you say no to, the less opportunities come your way and definitely the less you create. I'll now say like as a caveat, particularly as a woman now in my mid 30s, there is now the power in learning how to say no. 
Um, so it's kind of, I feel like different waves of my life, I've had to learn to kind of bring out a different style to opportunities. But yeah, in my 20s, I just wanted to do different stuff. And I did my first marathon and I just had no idea how transformative it would be. And not saying that it was a good experience. Um, I really battled. I nearly didn't finish it. Um, I got to like 32Ks and I'd only ever run 32Ks in training. And I was like, how do people move forward feeling like their entire body is like a piece of lead? And it was this mental and physical mash of discomfort. Uh, And I had a girlfriend I was running with at the time and she just looked at me and she was like, suck it up, princess. We've got 10K left to go. And I couldn't believe she was just, she was just running along. And yeah, I got to the, you actually in the Melbourne Marathon, you get to run inside the stadium. Right. And I remember going into the stadium and I saw like, you know, one sixteenth of the stadium filled with people and I entered it feeling the shittiest I'd felt in my life. But then I saw those people clapping and I felt like a bloody rock star. <laughs> I remember like raising my arms up in the air and sprinting. And then I reflected going, I thought I was physically done, but then all of a sudden in an instant, I felt physically fine. So yeah. it definitely was my mindset that was overriding my physical capability. Yeah, 100%. And I've noticed that too in, in all the competition I've done over the years. And it's and the other thing, it becomes an addiction. Did you find after that first marathon, there was an addiction there from then on? Yeah, because it was so new to me, I definitely fell into the trap of like, I want to go bigger, faster, hotter, longer. And I would say for the next five years, I pushed the boundaries in every which direction. Like I went from doing the marathon to then going over to Chile and running in the driest ultra marathon on the planet, uh, the Atacama Desert, carrying like all my supplies for six days. And then I was like, oh, no woman's ever completed these, what they call the Four Deserts Grand Slam, which is four 250 kilometer desert ultra marathons, the hottest, coldest, driest and windiest deserts on earth. And I'm like, no woman's ever done it. What if I do it? <laughs> um, and so then I did that. And then the year after I ran 222 kilometers nonstop between the world's highest and motorall pass. Right. I mean, I could kind of, it makes me sound like a bit neurotic, but then I did like <laughs> run 379 kilometers nonstop across the Simpson Desert in Australia. So, yeah, I think that I fell into the trap of I needed constant momentum. I didn't take pause or reflection. And I guess luckily I had the beauty of youth at my side that it didn't destroy me. But also because I was, you know, um, training to be a lawyer and I was studying, I had um, a natural restoration period because when I got home from these races, I had to study or I had to work. And so my body kind of recovered because of that. Um, And if I didn't have the law in my life, I feel like I could have got really badly burnt out. Right, yeah, you could easily overtrain. So, but did you have any um, one helping you in planning on like how do you train physically for something like that? It's not something you're going to go out. I'm going to go run a hundred k every day. Yeah, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I look back and laugh. I mean, there's this real beauty of naivety with yeah. youth. You know, I have a lot of people who reach out to me now and go, "I want to do this." crazy big wild thing and I look at it and I you know I sometimes have to catch myself like celebrate that beautiful naivety because often people won't do things 
out of their comfort zone if they don't have a good dose of naivety and a good dose of ego at play. And I think we disregard ego so much and we try and tell people to calm it down. But in the idea planning, those two things need to be strong. And then when you get to execution mode, that's when they have to simmer down. So you have to recognize that you're naive because otherwise you won't do the right type of work and you have to simmer down ego because otherwise you're gonna go out too hard like you said before and you're gonna burn out and you're not gonna be able to continue on. So I think knowing when to play with like internal drivers is like really powerful for doing big things, you know, in the unknown. And then also on the other side of things, it's obviously you're doing ultra marathons and you're out there for so long, the mental side of things. Do you, do you, did you naturally have that or did you have to train your mind? Obviously at the beginning, you probably, because you didn't know, but how did you deal with that? I didn't, yeah, I think you're right in saying like I had no idea if I was mentally strong or did I develop it along the way. Uh, This one guy that I reached out to coach me um, was this Canadian ultra runner called Ray Zahab. And he's um, a guy who ran across the Sahara Desert, like the entire Sahara Desert. He did it in 101 days with two other guys, a Canadian, American, and a Taiwanese. They ran 70 kilometers every single day on average without a day off. And I always think that if you want to do big feats of anything, find the best people who are doing something similar to that and just try and reach out to them. We've never been in such a great time of interconnectedness, even though we're in a global pandemic where we can't travel. But people are by their phones. They see when a message comes in. Like they might not choose to look at a direct message that's not in their network, but a lot of people do. Um, And if you write a compelling like story, they might reach out to you. So I wrote to this guy and I said, I'm doing this thing. I love what you did. And he had this quote that um, uh, an ultra marathon is 90% mental and the other 10% is all in your head. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's so cool because basically it says, like, don't be defined or limited by your past. It's all about what you fuel into your mind that's going to determine, one, your training, your mindset, and your physical response. So I think mentally has always been my secret power and the physical has developed over the years. Um, I have a pretty robust now sense of self. Uh, If I choose to do something, um, the chosen sacrifices that I make to be there help create like a lot of internal drive as well. Like nothing's ever come easy to me because I'm not a natural athlete. I've had to work so, so hard to be in these arenas and I don't take it for granted. Uh, And I think that's, you know, I always say it's better to be someone with a growth mindset than with natural talent. Yeah. Well, obviously during those times that you would have felt like broken at times, like how... (laughs) What did you think about Mm. as you're on these massive, because you're basically on your own, aren't you, when you're running? Yeah, I mean, every race that I've done or I do a lot of expeditions more now. Like I love creating the parameters of what these adventures are going to look like. But um, you're often on your own uh, and then sometimes you choose to buddy up with people. Yeah, and I've, (laughs) I mean, I've been in bad ways when my guts are playing up. You know, I've got diarrhea, I'm vomiting, I'm dehydrated, like, and it's it's overwhelm and the temperature always seems so extreme in these races. Like, it's never just a nice 20 degrees. It's either like 40 or it's like two degrees or, you know, it's, it's always extremes. Yeah. And I'll never forget when I, in 2016, I ran across India and um, 
every day I ran between, you know, like 40 to 77 Ks and I, I prepped for it for two years. So it was three and a half thousand Ks. I was doing right. it as an ambassador of world vision. So like the intention was to explore the barriers to why children are unable to access quality education, but to use run as the vehicle to meet people and to experience like land and, you know, culture and language and all this stuff. And I remember I got to like one day and I'm like, okay, this is awesome. The schedule says I've just got three days of 40 Ks. That is so, so good. And I'm running along and a team member comes up to me and goes, we've had a massive miscalculation. (laughs) And I could see they were sweating of fear of what I would say. They're like, you don't have 40 Ks for the next three days. You're gonna have to do like 70 Ks for the next three days. (laughs) And like, I was feeling okay at that point until they told me that. And I looked at them and like, I won't say that I wanted to like punch him, but in my head I was like, you have one job, you have one job. Um, And I just remember I was feeling like a lot of fire. Like there's been times where I've like physically been broken, but I think the harder being broken is when the mind is at overwhelm. And that's not just like in an ultra run, that's just in life in general. And sometimes people are like, you just gotta keep inching forward, inching forward. And like one of my favorite quotes is like, so progress is still progress. But also like, sometimes you can't keep progressing when you are so much at capacity. And so I remember I actually jumped into my camper van and even though I still had like 30 more Ks of that day to go, I was like, guys, I'm in like fury and fire. I need to take 30 minutes sleep. And everyone's like, but you've got to keep going. You've got to run before it gets dark. And I'm like, I just need to like chill out. And so I had a 30 minute sleep and then I woke back up and then I mind mapped how I was going to get through the kilometers for the next three days. It was the most most simple (laughs) mind map you've ever seen. It's like, wake up, do this. But I had, I had to see the possibility of it on paper, not just in my mind. And then I went back out there and did it. And, um, I sometimes say like, know the difference of when slow progress is still progress and then understand the importance of when taking a side step is actually what's going to get you the next step forward and so that's what i've learned through the years of kind of pushing the bounds and extending myself i'm not invincible there's times when like mentally i'm like this is just not worth it but i think when you choose to truly commit what it means is you're you're choosing to commit for all the hurdles that are going to come your way as well that's a very good point and do you think now you've done this compared to not doing what you've done in ultramarathon that you would understand to me the way you're speaking you understand your mind and your body a lot better now but that wouldn't have happened if you never did the ultramarathons oh that's why it was like so transformative i had never played in that space like i wasn't a kid that grew up playing like team football or and I think I did tennis for a little bit but like you know it just really I didn't understand that and there is a beauty of team like a lot of the stuff that I do is um you know like I'm an ultra runner and it seems like a really solo sport but the way I've chosen to do it is as a team endeavor Hmm. Uh, a lot of the expeditions I have support teams from the beginning middle and end and so I think if I had had my like time again I would have loved to have been a kid that did team sports you just learn so much about how to be a team player how to put aside your interest for the benefit of the mission or the other people in your team Uh, and one of the sports that I now love is actually adventure racing and um, it's because I'm like 
the older I get, the more I want to share experiences with other people. You know, um, I think a lot of my earlier running career is like I reflect on it and it was amazing. It was transformative, but it was like Sam at at the center. And now it's kind of like, I'm not so wired to that. I'm more about, you know, if my time and my footsteps on this planet are finite, which they are for everyone, what makes me feel the best? And it's when I get to share it with people that I really care about and have a fun time with. And, you know, I did um, the world's toughest race in 2018, which was a 700 kilometer adventure race in Fiji. It actually aired as a 10-part series on Amazon Prime that Bear Grylls was the host for. And um, your teams of four, you were dropped in the middle of Fiji. It was mountain biking, kayaking. I mean, you would have loved this. Stand-up paddleboarding, trekking, all navigation, and then like all these random disciplines. You never knew which discipline you would have. You had to navigate the whole way. And it was all about team dynamics and strategy. It was We had a blast. Like there's so many teams screaming at each other. And we were... Every time the camera crews are in front of us, like it's no reason we didn't really make it into the show because they're like, you guys seem to be like managing your emotions way too well. (laughs) Because we were like, all of us were parents. We're like, if you're going to be in this space, you're going to be away from your family and kids. Yeah, it hurts, but you chose to be it. And like, don't be one of those people that hates it in the moment and then reflects back on it in like a week's time going, oh, that was so cool. Like, you know, you're going to do that. So you may as well enjoy it in the now for what it is. Yeah. And I think that's another good point is a lot of people, especially the uh, people listening to um, this podcast. That's a great way to look at it because I think people do that. They don't take the moment and, and think about that and appreciate that moment you're in right now. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I feel so fortunate that a part of my career now is that I do this, but um, I set up a, um, a business called Her Trails and it's about getting women to embrace the, the wilderness, yeah. but also to like build their resilience, their self-reliance and their play um, and not just have it in the arena of like the sports and like when they go for a trail run, but to inject it into their everyday life. And yeah. it's a choice. Like, you know, I often like earlier this year, I went and did, um, I linked up three of Tasmania's really technical trails in the Southwest. So um, Western Arthur's, um, Port Davy track and the South Coast track. And they were, um, it's like 200 Ks, 13,000 meters of elevation. We carried all our stuff. It was a bunch of mates and everyone's like, how did you, how did you get out there? You've got a three-year-old. And I'm like, I made the time. Like no one's going <laughs> to give me a week of my life to do that. It makes me a better mother, better partner. And I like to have fun. And that's my version of fun. Well, also going back to um, talking about India when you did that mm-hmm. and you're raising a lot of money. So a lot of these things and, and the marathons that you've done have raised a lot of money. So maybe tell us about when did that come into your mindset? Like I'm going to do these runs. I'm going to raise money mm. for charities. Did, was that the beginning or was that as you went through? It's been an evolution. Uh, I think I've definitely been wired to contribution from a young age. Uh, and when I was studying my law degree, I always thought that I'd end up becoming like uh, a lawyer for the UN or perhaps work for you know, a social justice organization based in Australia. So that was like the early social justice version of what I wanted my life to be. Then somehow I got funneled into corporate law and, you know, (laughs) working for the man. Um, And then I just was so unsatisfied. And then I kind of found ultra running 
And it didn't, like I always had a fundraising component to it, but there's a difference between the, the fundraising being the main driver versus something ancillary. Now, there might be a bunch of your, you know, listeners who do, you know, running for change stuff or they do the run for the kids or whatever it is. And whether it's ancillary, ancillary objective or it's the main driver, it doesn't matter. you just got to know what it is. And like anything in life, whatever you put the most attention into is what you get the most penetration and success into. So, the older I've gotten and the more experience I've gotten, I've realized that if I really want to raise, you know, funds and if I want to create social justice change, it has to be the driver, right. which is hard when you're trying to also run across a country. So it's, it's a real balance of play. And I would say after I did that big race in the Himalayas in 2011, when it wasn't really about anything other than myself, I just had this moment at this five and a half thousand meter peak. It was it was a total whiteout. It was freezing cold. I had hypothermia. I still had like 60 Ks to go. And I had brought a bunch of mates who were my support crew and they were doing everything to look after me, like to keep me moving. And I just had this point going, oh my God, what if I rallied these people for something bigger than me? Right. And I kind of made this little like promise to myself on this Tanglung La mountain, like the next projects that I'm going to do is about using running as a vehicle for social change. And it, that's, it, that's the evolution. But if I hadn't have run for myself to push my own physical and mental boundaries to begin with, I wouldn't have gotten to that place. So, you know, if you are running or doing whatever it is because you want to be competitive and you want to beat times and you want to discover stuff about yourself, that's awesome. And if you want to do it for other reasons, that's awesome as well. So I think you've just got to find out what you're wired to um, because your why is probably the thing that's going to determine if you get to the finishing line. Yes. Um, and I can say hand on heart, if I was just purely running across India because I wanted to experience running across India, I think I would have gotten up to week two because it was like a shit show, like quite literally. I mean, I had, I had diarrhea for 77 days, but it was... It was so hard and intense and the fact that I kept getting grounded to why I was doing it actually then made the undertaking of one foot in front of the other very simple in perspective. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that. it's been a big, you know, I think one of my friends who I've worked in on nearly every campaign with, he told me the other day that through running focused initiatives, we've raised $1.7 million for charities um, yeah, since we've started amazing. kind of doing it. Yeah, and, and the biggest yeah. one... Mm. Oh, but the biggest, this is the interesting point. The biggest one has been when it's not been about me running across something. It's been about letting other people experience the physical and mental journey. So we, um, in 2020, set up a thing called the Relief Run. It was um, initially founded to support the Australian bushfire crisis. And I just had this idea one day as I was going for a run. It was just after Bermagui, like the town of Bermagui had been evacuated onto the beach. I was meant to be there having my honeymoon and we decided to not drive there. And I just thought, you know, everyone has different things that they're great at. And I thought I'm, I'm good at running and I'm good at bringing people together, particularly around running and social change. And so my mate Nick Davidson and I thought about creating this relief run, you know, virtual 5K, 21K run, all the money going to the Australian Red Cross for the bushfire relief efforts. And in 12 days, we raised $1.1 million. 
and we had 17,000 participants from 96 countries. We had no big brand. We had no massive influences. It was purely an example of mass micro donation and social media at work. And then this year, we also did it again for uh, the India COVID-19 crisis and we raised $340,000. And that was a much harder campaign because the media penetration about what was happening with in India with COVID was a lot less than, you know, what was happening with the bushfires in Australia globally. But it just, once again, like people don't just want to watch someone do something. They want to be a part of something. Uh, And I think we are really in an era of where people want to experience something. Yeah. I I can't agree a hundred percent. That's correct. And what's, uh, what's next? Have you got anything? What's the next? uh, Um, Is it a marathon or is it a, some mad challenge that you want to do? Yeah, I mean, my whole world has changed with COVID in many respects. You know, I used to have a big project every second years, uh, every second year um, that I would build to, uh, and then things kind of shifted quite a bit with COVID, um, and so that's why I focused on her trails. It's nice to be in a place in my career where I can be utilising the skills that I have and kind of building them into a program. But I think I have one more really big project left in me. Yeah. And so I definitely have a calling to the Southeast Asia region. Yeah. And so there is a run that I would like to do with an incredible woman called Megan Hine, who's a UK survivalist, and we would like to do a run in Nepal. But it just has to be the right time. Like you can't, you know, we had so many different dates and when we were doing it and we had our like we've got the map of the run that we want to do and it's basically the map goes through an entire like room of a house because it's, you know, and um, it's just not right with COVID and all this kind of stuff. And it made me reflect on, you know, there were so many Westerners going to the Himalayas during like the peak of COVID yeah. in Nepal. And I get it because I need it for tourism, but it's really hard when it then it also exacerbates COVID as well. So like on a value ethical position, I just don't know when is the right time to do that kind of stuff. But yeah. I don't think my personal adventure should surpass another yeah. nation's health. So when the time <laughs> is right, the time is right. Yeah, and yeah, um, yeah. training, there's always time to train. And uh, I'm focusing yeah. a lot on strength training at the moment because I think strength training for an endurance athlete is the foundation. Uh, And I think if we considered it 10 years ago when I started ultra running, runners just ran and they ran the same pace. They never added different stimuli. They never cross trained. They didn't get in the water to recover. And now the way I view my body is in a much more holistic way. Um, And I think that allows you to keep going for the long run, quite literally. Yeah. Do you think you'll get to a point where I'm not going to do any more ultra marathons, but will you keep the fundraising going and maybe bring other people, encourage them to do the runs and you just sort of go along for the, you know, for the ride? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm doing, they're starting to do that with her trails, kind of getting more, I I definitely have an interested uh, bent in getting more women doing the sport. I think it's a sport that women have an aptitude for. uh, And a lot of women didn't have an opportunity when they were younger to be adventurous, you know, didn't learn how to be out in the wild as much, particularly, you know, women who are maybe in their like 30s. Um, Hopefully it's kind of shifting now. But um, yeah, 100%, that would be, I'd love to kind of, coach and lead a group of women to go and do a big adventure um, and to connect it with social change because for me like it's enhanced my enjoyment of the adventure when there's a reason beyond yourself to it yeah 
And what do you say? Because you also get a lot of critics saying it's so bad for your body. Um, you know, so that would then stop some people actually going on who might want to do that. Mm. I mean, I look at, you know, I look at my own life and kind of go, okay, I've never really had really bad injuries. Um, I ran across India, then I was a, very shortly after I was a contestant on Survivor. Okay. Very shortly after that, I fell pregnant. And I think pregnancy is a huge sign of vitality that you're able to conceive when a lot of people would say endurance athletes would struggle to fall pregnant and some would but I have always been a moderate even though my projects seem incredibly extreme I train so much less than a lot of ultra runners and I think it's because I have the other driver of the social justice kind of bent to all my projects it balances me out like i can't just be running for six hours a day in my training block i have logistics to do i have fundraising to do i have partners to make sure that i'm keeping happy Uh, and all that stuff takes so much time but it's also the stuff i love like i love the project managing of that kind of stuff so my advice to people who are interested in getting in the sport but are concerned about the risks I would say it's like anything. Take a moderate approach, be holistic with your training, um, focus on your well-being drivers of you know good quality sleep, good nutrition, and then the rest typically takes care for itself. Yeah, yeah. Great advice. And you touched on Survivor, you did do Survivor, and you did meet your husband on Survivor. <laughs> I did. I did. We, we won the game of life. <laughs> you love, I haven't watched back Survivor of our season for ages, but I recently had to watch it back. And um, this is going to be embarrassing to you particularly, but I nearly drowned on yeah. my season of Survivor. I got caught in a rip and I had like lost too much weight and... Basically, they filmed this scene of like Luke and my now husband Mark yeah. rescuing me. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, I normally can swim. Trust me, trust me. I just got caught in a rip. <laughs> no, but it's awesome. I mean, it's been this really beautiful part of my life that I met my husband and we've created a family and we met on a reality TV show. Like, talk about life throwing you a couple of curveballs that you never imagined. That's it. It's, it's crazy, isn't it? But uh, oh, it's so you, crazy. Did, did you handle that mentally, or did you think you'd, it'd be quite easy to deal with Survivor, the competition, compared to doing the ultra marathons? Yeah, I think I was naive. I had literally just finished running across India, like within a matter of months, and then I went on Survivor, and I just kept thinking, you know, like I've just run across India. Like, yeah. how can anything be harder than that? And what I didn't reflect on enough is like, whilst, you know, running across India is incredibly hard and it took a lot of mental, you know, driving and well-being. Um, the difference was I was working with a team of people where our mission was all the same to kind of get from point A to point B um, and supporting access to education. As everyone who's listening to this who watches Survivor all the time, Survivor is like, you know, 24 people with very independent goals. In fact, their goals are all conflicting. Mm. Uh, It's to win at the cost of other people. And I just didn't prep myself for that reality. I also thought 
I would be okay in the context of a game with lying and being lied to. <laughs> and then <laughs> it was really hard. Like I found it so hard. Like someone's telling you something and I'm like, I think I know they're lying. So, <laughs> you know, I think you, my naivety led me to believe that that experience would be easier and it was actually really hard. Did you ever look back and did you have- your future husband never lied to you back in the survivor days <laughs> he was no that's the that's why we got booted out I, I, I wouldn't say we fell in love even though like the ads made it seem like we had fallen in love i'm like come on guys it was 17 days but that said um you know he we were so loyal we were so, we were both really really loyal people yeah. and we walk a similar path in our normal lives like he was oh. in the sas um you know i do a lot of projects with teams so i think there was a beauty that came together by the two of us um yeah. being so loyal to each other yeah. oh mate, it's a great story and, and yeah. sam I, I appreciate you coming on and, and giving us the insight into the ultra marathon and and the mindset on on dealing with that it's um amazing and the fundraising you've done it's uh helped so many people around the world so congratulations oh thanks so much and let me know if you ever want to chat about your work in india i'd love to you know help you brainstorm or you know field any ideas that you have coming your way Nah, for sure i'd love to um yeah we'll get in touch and uh see what we can do to help uh the drowning in india yeah totally (laughs) thanks for having me all right cheers thanks sam What a strong and determined person Sam is. Such a pleasure having her in the Beach Shack. Next up, Beach Banner. This week in the Beach Shack, we've got Harrison Reed. Hutsy, welcome. Cheers, Hop. Thanks for having me. Mate, we've uh, done a, a few swims over the years and the best one, I think, the standout would be the Rotto swim and Channel 10 took us over and we did a fair few of those. And So just give us a little bit of an insight on what we have to do over there and and also um into the swim and and the best part of all is the uh the party at the end of it yes well for people who don't know the rottenest island swims over in perth western australia and that's probably the most populated area for great white sharks probably in the region <laughs> and so we start in perth on the beach at cottesloe we've got to swim to rottenest and that's about a nine, just shy of 20 kilometers yep. swim and uh, we do it in a team of four. We have a kayaker following us and a boat and we, you know, swap in and out. It's the conditions uh, on the day can be perfect, which we've had, or we've had the worst conditions ever where yep. it's been onshore wind, it's just been choppy, swells, you know, everyone's getting seasick. So I think to fair to say we've we've had it all. Yep. Yeah, we've had every uh, every condition and yeah, when that, uh, they call it the doctor, it comes in that wind and when it comes in early, it's pretty vicious punching Swimming straight into it is, is probably the worst condition you can get, but those glassy days that we've had, it's just magnificent. Yeah, yeah. I remember the um, the best part about it is um, we fly over on a Thursday and we come back on Monday. And a lot of people think we're athletes, you know, we're lifeguards, but we just go straight out Thursday <laughs> night, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> straight to the Claremont Hotel, then to the Avenue, the lounge, room, the L-shaped lounge. Yeah, the L-shaped lounge. We usually, yeah, yeah, kick off the swim tour yep. and uh, have a few beers, probably too many. Yeah. And uh, we don't really do a lot of preparation before we go over and we just sort of wing it off um, basically natural ability, I suppose, is all we've got because the fitness is not there and uh, top it up with a, 
I suppose you call it a carbo loading, would you? Yeah, yeah all definitely. the beers. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, I reckon, you know, look, we've won it a few times at the charity <laughs> team's event, so, you know, it, it works. Yeah. Well, Dusk, because I've done, I think I did about 10 all up, and yeah. I don't think we were never off the podium, I don't think. No, we we're got always, first, second or third. always on the podium yeah. each time, which is pretty impressive. You th- think some people are probably training all year for that. I remember, um, I remember because no one wanted to go off the beach, mm. and since I was the youngest one, I always had to go off the beach. And because yeah. It's that. It's like a race off the beach. It's sharky, and it's the longest swim. It's an extra two k, and it's early in the morning too. The start. And I remember. Remember, we went out the night before the swim just for a couple of settlers, and the guys. Um, you guys were on the had to go to the boat. So, out the the house we we're staying at was pretty much near Cottesloe. So yeah. I got an extra an hour sleeping because you guys had to go yeah. and meet the boat driver. We, we had to go down to Fremantle to get Fremantle, on the boat. That's yeah. right. So, everyone woke up, and I thought all right, I was just cruising in bed for a bit. I was a bit dusty and I fell back asleep. <laughs> Next when I woke up, it was like 10 minutes to the swim race. <laughs> and like, obviously, I had to get down there and have a car. So I put my togs on, my goggles, and I'm running down the main main road of Cottesloe on the, on the road, just trying to get there. Some bloke goes, you're going for the swim? Pulled over, I jumped in there with him. Go down there to try and find my kayaker. Go into the thing. And then I had like two minutes to go. And then they came and interviewed me. And I was so nervous that I was playing with my goggles and my goggles snapped on the start line. So then they're putting announcements on seeing if anyone had spare goggles on uh, spare goggles and this lady gave me some and they were so big. And I remember the start went and I, you know, got a bit too confident and went off the front with everyone else. And I dove in the water and the goggles went around my neck. But everyone's swimming on top of each other. You couldn't stop. So yeah. I had to keep swimming. I was in salt water in my eyes and there was heaps of boats around. So you always smell petrol. You're getting petrol in your eyes. Oh. And once I got to the boat to see you guys, God, I was happy. <laughs> well, that two, first 2K swim must have felt like 20. Oh, for sure. And then, you know, another 18K to go. <laughs> yeah, but on the uh, on the boat, it's good because we bag each other and everyone jumps in and we usually – well, kick off for 10 minutes each, then we go to five minutes each and then keep yeah. rotating. And But it's a good day. We banter with each other on the boat and, and, and rev each other up. and Have the music blaring. That's right, the music blaring all yeah. the way. And, you know, we, we look at about any under, you know, just under five hours, five hours out in the boat. And yeah. then we hit the land. When you can see that last kilometre, yeah. you just go, oh, I can't wait to get there. And you see people going past you on the ferry and they're only going over to, to get on the drink and start yeah. partying, you know. Yeah, and yeah. We didn't realise how how big it is on the, on the island at Rotnest, and uh, you know, tell us a story though when we land on Rotnest and, and what happens from there. We um we, we land, you know, we get get to Rotnest Island, and we're exhausted, and Channel Ten have hotel rooms on the island for us, so we go straight there. There's subways there waiting for us, drinks, <laughs> and we were that sunburnt, windburnt, and like I tell you what, the beers were going down like lead. They were really hard. We were dehydrated, and uh, then we you know, get our act together and go down to, you know, the prize giving. Hmm. So we're there and then we've already had a few beers deep by then and then obviously the after party is just, it's on. Yeah. And everyone's there, like everyone's still walking around their speedos, you know, <laughs> like 10 o'clock at night. I remember one year, one year we were there, Jared Port won yeah. the individual and he's in a speedos and he's got this big trophy and people are just filling it up with wine, <laughs> beer, whatever, and he's just drinking it out of it and, and uh, it's a fun night, but the worst part is, you know, it's time to go home. <laughs> and we have to try and organise, find everyone and get onto that ferry. Yeah, that late ferry is not the best, is it? It's, uh, everyone's pretty drunk by then and and uh, you're trying to get on and then you've got that, what, about a 45-minute, half an hour, 40-minute 
drive sort of in the ferry back to Fremantle and, uh, yeah, it's pretty horrific. It's choppy, of, uh, people yeah, vomiting choppy, yeah. and all that. I remember one year we were, um, we were up the top on the decking and we're going back and the spray kept coming over. It was pretty choppy one one year and, anyway, someone turned around and said, no, it's not. And then we looked over and this poor girl was just throwing up and oh, it was catching it in the wind. Horrendous. And spraying it back over everybody that was... <laughs> It's on the boat and the decking, it. and oh, it was Coughing horrific, it. horrific. It. <laughs> I remember, remember sometimes we all, got, we all got lost. We always, some of us got off at the wrong stop. I remember Mouse <laughs> and I one year found a McDonald's, had no idea where we were, in the middle of nowhere. Phones were dead because been on the phones all day. Oh god, yeah, that was definitely um, that was some of the funnest times in my life, and just seeing uh, that's that's on the Saturday. We don't yeah. even mention yeah. about the Sunday. Well, we always stayed for the Sunday. The Sunday session in Perth is sensational, and it? it's a, it's a great afternoon. Yeah, we go and have our lunch. We prepare for it. Yeah, and then we have the drinks throughout the afternoon, and you know, and, and all the Perth people are fantastic. They always are, you know, very um, nice, and, and they come up to us and say hello, yep. and it's you know, they make us feel like we're a part of you know Perth as well. So it's yep. it's a great atmosphere. Yeah, everyone's so friendly over in Perth. You go to the 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 Cot Hotel, then. Stumble down to the OBH and next minute, time to go to bed. And uh, next morning, fly out and just see everyone defeated at the airport. <laughs> well, it's a pretty solid session isn't it? from Thursday and we from Thursday night and then into Friday. We try and go a little bit quiet on, on the Friday night, yeah. then into the swim on the Saturday. And then we just pretty much go hard from Saturday into the Sunday afternoon. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a long, long flight home from Perth to Sydney. It, uh, you know, that, that next afternoon. You even forget about those radio interviews you've got to do Friday morning, six o'clock. Remember that? And he runs that dusty from the night before. We can't even speak and all that. And they just torture us. They try and get stories out and we're just full mute. Yeah, we're, we're in there. And they, they we're talking about swimming and we're just still talking about the night before. So, yeah, it's, they must have thought we were nuts. But anyway, we uh, I remember one year that was the um, the Bachelor crew. They were, they were there as the other team and... They went to bed early and were doing the right thing and couldn't believe that we'd been out having a drink the night before. Yep, and then, yep. uh, anyway, we ended up beating them by about two hours. So <laughs> <laughs> I think they t- they said that's going to be their uh, their mission the following year. He said, we're just going to have a drink rather than yep. prepare for the race. That's the secret. All right, mate. Thanks uh, for coming into the Beach Shack. It's uh, good to have a chat. Cheers, Hop. Thanks for having me. Up next, I answer letters from the fans. This letter is from Agnes. What is the most challenging thing about being a lifeguard? Well, probably the most challenging is paying attention 100% of the time, especially on long days, because someone can get into trouble and drown quite quick, you know, within a matter of seconds. So you can't sort of switch off. It's a type of job you need to be on your game 100% of the time. That's why we have fatigue breaks, lunch breaks, so people, you know, all the guys can have a bit of a rest and and recoup and then ready to go again. So when you're out on that beach or up in the lifeguard tower, you need to be 100% on your game because you can't afford to miss something. The downside in our job, if we do miss something, potentially someone can die. So it's a bit different to going to work in an office and you make a mistake, you can uh, most of the time rectify it, but with us at the beach, you know, with crowded days and, and the long days and being in the hot sun, it can really take its toll on our body and also mentally as well. So we need to be 
100%. Uh, so I think uh, that's probably the most challenging being a lifeguard. Thanks everyone for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments or follow us on our social media channels which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.